Okay, it's great to see all of you here today. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer uh, before we go into God's Word. Dear Father, as we come before you, we really pray that you will give me the Holy Spirit to preach faithfully from your Word and the Holy Spirit to be working in the hearts of all of us as we look at your Word. You alone can explain what it means to us and into our deeds and our hearts to fulfill things which are not right within us. And we pray that that may happen today. Uh, truly, that we may walk faithfully in you. And we pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, now, uh, when I was younger, uh, before I became a Christian, before I knew uh, Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I was actually quite a superstitious person. So I remember when I was once very young, I was on the airplane, I didn't feel very well, and my mom gave me a hex suite. Uh, so for those of you who obviously are a bit uh, older and do not know the traditions of the past, uh, hex suites were very popular when uh, when I was much younger. You know hex? I don't know. Do you all know these things? You can find it in some of the older provision shops. Okay, so the next slide. Right, okay, this guy. So anyway... After the incident, I sort of had this superstitious uh, attraction to hex suites. So I would always carry these hex suites in my pocket wherever I went. And whenever I was nervous, whenever I had an exam, no matter what I was scared, I would always like touch or eat my hex suite, sort of like a security blanket, blanket to, to make me feel better. Anyway, when I got older, I, I did away with the hex suites. But I remember my grandmother went on a cruise on this boat called the QE2. Okay, now again, for those of you who do not live in that generation, all right, this was a very famous boat, which was a very, I guess, it was a very big deal to go on that boat at that time. And my grandmother uh, gave me this coin from the QE2. And for whatever reason, uh, again, I sort of took this coin to be like my uh, lucky charm, and I would carry it around with me everywhere I went. So, you know, I have uh, some stressful situation, a sporting competition, exam out, out, carry this coin with me. But later on, I realized that uh, the hex suites, uh, I don't carry it anymore, and the uh, QE2 coin, I, I can't find it anymore. They didn't really make any difference in my life. It really didn't help me in my exams, my sporting competitions. It was just a false sense of security, and I had to get rid of it and throw it away. And I think that today, as we look at the book of Amos, chapter 5 and chapter 6, it sort of speaks of how Christian people or people of God can also have false security or, in a sense, spiritual hex suites or spiritual QE2 coins in which they hold on to but are really dangerous. Because in holding on to these false securities, they're actually becoming complacent and self-satisfied and putting their trust in the wrong things and as a result, not putting their faith in things which give them real security. So it begins in verse 18, where Amos speaks to the people, and God speaks to the people through Amos, and it says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Now this will be really shocking and surprising to God's people in Israel, the northern kingdom. Because they would have expected God to have said to them, Bless you who long for Yahweh's day, for the day of the Lord, for the day of Yahweh. But instead, God says to them, Woe to you! What a great tragedy it would be! How sad, how despairing it would be for you when the day of Yahweh comes, when I come to you, my power. Now, in those days, uh, God's people would have longed and looked forward to with great, great anticipation to Yahweh coming. 
because they would have expected God, the Almighty Yahweh, to come to them in power like a warrior God, like a warrior, fighting on Israel's behalf, overcoming her enemies, bringing victory and glory, just like in the old days when she had brought her people, his people, into the promised land. But instead of that, God says that it will be a day of woe, a day of great sadness and despair. Because as we've seen over the last few weeks, when God comes to Israel on that day, He will not be coming as a warrior to help them defeat their enemies, but instead He will be coming as a judge to judge them for their sins. So already in Amos chapter 4, remember a few weeks ago, He warned them through Amos. He said, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So here in chapter 4, if you remember, God said that He is going to meet His people, Israel, not as a warrior God or as a saviour God, but as a judging God, just as He had judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Last week in Amos chapter 6, I didn't touch on this passage, but it's just the passage before. And he said, There will be wailing in all the streets and the cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. They will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst. Now this uh, idea of God coming and passing into the midst of His people in Israel was not something which would bring joy and happiness and blessing, but rather it would bring great judgment. Because in Exodus chapter 12, the last time God passed through somewhere, it was Egypt. And when He passed through Egypt, that was when He struck down every firstborn men and animals to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. So that's what God is saying. You say, you're looking forward to me coming, you're longing for the day of me coming, but when I come, it will be a day of woe, just as it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, just as it was for Egypt. And that's why in verse 18 and in verse 20, he uses this image. He says, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Verse 20, which sort of completes the imagery, will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness. Now I think that we live in a modern world where it's very hard to imagine the imagery that God is bringing here. Right? Imagine living just for a moment in a time without light. It's very hard today because you know we all have light everywhere, we've got mobile phones, we have ambient light from things which are still on. It's very hard to have no light whatsoever. I was trying to imagine myself what God's image was trying to bring to me. And I remember uh, when I went on holiday, I think last year to Taiwan, we went uh, in this tunnel. Okay, This is where holiday photographs actually come in helpful. So anyway, I went in this tunnel, which was like stretched for like, seems like miles. They built it to go to some gorge somewhere. And I remember we were in the middle of the gorge, uh, middle of this tunnel, next slide. Okay, this is near the end, right? So that's how dark it is. But right in the middle of this tunnel, the tour guide turned off his lights and there was complete and utter darkness. And I mean real, 
it, it was really dark, as is the darkest it's ever been in my whole life. I couldn't see my hand right in front of my face. And I felt terrified. I felt real terror because I thought, I don't know which way it's up. What happens if his torchlight doesn't turn on again? What happens if the battery died? How will I ever get out here? Right? I'll never see everybody at BTPC again. Right? <laughs> but it was, it was like that. I want you to imagine what pitch darkness would be like. It would be terror. And that's what God is saying here. God is saying that they were longing for the day of God coming, but on that day it would be like pitch darkness. The terror that you would feel. A day of woe for them. And he sort of builds on the image by saying in verse 19, it would be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and he rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Now as we read this passage, if we were to read it in isolation, just verse 19 on its own, we would sort of think, well, this guy is very uh, very, very bad luck. Right? You know, he ran away from the lion, then the bear got him, then he finally got away from the bear, he went to the house and then the snake bit him. But the picture here is not of bad luck. It is to show that when God comes in judgment, there is no escape. There is no safety outside, there is no safety inside. Wherever you go, just when you think you are safe, you will not be safe. It is a picture of unavoidable judgment and doom. And that's what God is saying to God's people. He's saying, look, you are longing for me to come to you, but on that day it will be terror, it will be darkness. You can run, but you cannot hide from me. I will bring judgment and doom upon you. Now why are these, why are these things going to happen when God comes to them? Why, why is it such a great woe for them when it should be a day of blessing for them. Well, in verse 21, in chapter 5 to chapter 6, I think God identifies three areas in which they are putting false security in. False, uh, uh, I guess, things which are, they put their faith in wrongly, which make them think that when He comes, things will be good. But actually, these are false securities and things which will actually bring them doom instead. So in the first section, in verse 21, they seem to be putting false security in their religious festivals. Okay, So he says that, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, for those of you who are looking at your outlines, you might sort of think that I've become a bit dyslexic or something. And you know, I keep repeating the numbers 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3, and all the fonts are all different and mucked up. But actually, there's a, there's a, there's a method in the madness. Okay, the reason is because actually... If you look at this section, there are things that they are to throw away in terms of their false confidence, and there are things that they are to do which are to provide real security. So the first thing is they're supposed to throw away this false security in their religious practices. You see, the people in Israel's time were very religious people, as we've seen previously. They've got many religious feasts. They bring burnt offerings. They bring grain offerings. They bring choice fellowship offerings. They play music and sing songs to God. 
But look at how God views their worship, their ceremonial religious worship. He says, I hate it. I despise it. It's like a a bad smell of rubbish on the toilet to me. I have no regard for them. Your, Your music is like noise. It's not music to me. And the reason is because God's people were depending on their outward ceremonial worship to make themselves right with God. See, they were trusting and their security was in their ceremonial religious practice and obedience. But instead, what did God want from them? God says in just one verse what He really requires, which is, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. See, what was happening was God's people were worshipping God very regularly, doing all these external acts of religious observance. But in the rest of life, there was no righteousness. There was no justice. There was no faithfulness in her living. And God here uses an overwhelming picture of how much righteousness and justice He wants. So He says here, let justice roll on like a river. Okay, so think about it for a moment. I show you this slide. I got it off the net. Okay, next slide. So imagine righteousness just keeps in your life, your righteousness and your faithfulness and your justice flows like a river. It just never ends. Right? It's not like you do some righteous act once a day or once a week or once a month or you know you're faithful to God and you're living once in a while. But he wants to present a picture where your whole life It's just flowing continuously and mightily with faithfulness in every minute, in every act, in every thought. Justice is done all the time, not just once in a while, exceptionally. See, that's what the picture of a a, a mighty river, or a next slide, or even a stream is, isn't it? The stream just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And he's saying, that's what I want. I don't want you just to come to church on a Sunday or, or you know, and do all these religious acts and once in a while do something good. But your whole life must be characterized just like a river flowing with righteousness and faithfulness and living. See, God has saved His people. God has chosen them as His own priesthood. He had made a covenant with them. And what He required was faithfulness in all their living. Not just in doing external superficial, ceremonial, religious observance. Now, I wonder whether when we look at ourselves, we can be doing the same thing that the God's people did then. We just focus on the external ceremonial observances, but we don't actually have faithfulness in our life in everything that we do. So some Christians uh, seem to me Focusing a lot on ceremonial worship. So they say, oh, you know, speaking in tongues in church is really, really important because if you speak in tongues in church, then you are, you are really saved. Or you need to be baptized in a certain way and then you're saved. Or you need to celebrate uh, 40 days of Lent before Easter. Or you need to do communion in a certain way. You know, so they really focus a lot on the ceremonial external observances. For ourselves, we, we can also be tempted in a different way because I guess we, here at BDPC, we take God's Word very seriously. So we think as long as we come to church, we get the Bible study questions 
answered rightly, then we've, we've sort of worshipped God, right? But what we're really saying here, what God is really saying here, is that Christianity is not about the externals of a Sunday, but it's about the whole of life living out, living out faithfully before God. So I remember someone once said uh, this quote, and it really stuck with me. I don't know who said it. He said, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. Right? Because Christianity is not a religion as in we come to church on a Sunday and we do things, and then God is happy with us. Christianity is a relationship in Jesus Christ where because Jesus died for me, Jesus gave up His body for my sins, Jesus rose again from the dead, so He expects me in the whole of my life to be faithful to Him. See, think of it this way. Is marriage just the wedding? No, right? Marriage is not just the wedding, right? Because the wedding is just that one act where you, you, know, you, you come and you make the vow. But marriage is so much more than just a wedding. Marriage is a relationship where there is trust, love, care, and faithfulness. In the same way, when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is not just coming to church on a Sunday, it is the whole of life lived out in love. Love for God and trust and faithfulness to Him. Now what God is saying here, obviously, is not that we shouldn't come to church at all, or we shouldn't have external uh, things like singing songs, or getting the Bible right, or doing communion. But what the, the, the God's people in uh, his Amos' time were getting wrong was they thought that worship, ceremonial worship, was the, the goal, the end. But rather, coming to church, having a fellowship, is actually part of a much bigger picture of faithful living. See, consider Hebrews chapter 10, which we studied just a few months ago. It says in verse 19, <clears throat> Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, you notice the many connections there between Hebrews 10 and what Amos is saying. As you see the day of the Lord coming, let's come together and keep encouraging one another to love and good deeds and to encourage one another in faith. See, so coming together in church is not the end. And that's it, you know, we've ticked the box, we come to church on Sunday, but coming together in church is part of helping us live faithfully in the rest of life. So therefore, let us not put false security on just the fact that we came to church on Sunday, okay, so I'm right with God. No, we must see it as coming to church is part of our bigger, bigger picture of worshipping God in everything that we do. I remember going to uh, this very formal church, very beautiful church, uh, many weeks ago, and they had these really nice pews. 
in uh, the church. And you know, in some of the churches behind the pews, they have this little, um, like, what looks like a foot, foot rest. Anyway, I'm, I'm very embarrassing. I mistook it as a foot rest. But actually, I realized halfway through the service, it's actually not a foot rest. It's actually to kneel down on. So I, I mistakenly used my, put my feet there. But actually, you, what you do is you tip these things over and there's a little uh, cushion. So halfway through, whenever they pray, everybody goes down and kneels down before God to pray. The only problem is the people I came with, they only kneel to God during the service. But when I look at them, they do not kneel before God in the rest of their life. There is no kneeling before God in terms of their sexuality, in terms of their morality, in terms of their ethics. But what God is saying here to God's people was, if you are to kneel before God and worship before me on a Sunday or on their day, on the Sabbath, you must kneel before me in everything that they do. So that's the first thing that they were told that they were doing wrong. They were putting false security in their religious practice, but justice and righteousness was lacking in their life. In chapter 6, verse 1, he goes on to talk about the false security that they have in their complacency and security. It says in verse 1, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calneth, and look at it. Go from there to the great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster, and bring near a reign of terror. Now here we see that the people were very complacent and were very secure. And I think part of the reason was, uh, we understand the reign of uh, King Jeroboam, who ruled uh, the northern kingdom of Israel during this time. He ruled for a very long time, remember? Uh, we said in the first few uh, sermons. Uh, if you look up here in the slide, he actually managed to uh, protect and expand the kingdom to the north in Syria, and also to make gains in, in, in Philistia. So what had happened was, he managed to take Gath. So Gath was one of the major cities of the Philistines, and he conquered that against the Philistines. Okay, next slide. Okay, this is another map. Oh, it's very small. Anyway, Hamath is here. Again, it was controlled by Syria uh, before Jeroboam took it back. So because of this, uh, God's people were being very secure. They felt very powerful. In fact, if you look there in verse 6b, or oh, sorry, verse 61b, they were saying to themselves, we are one of the foremost nations, we are like one of the best nations, because we are so powerful militarily. So they had this false sense of security and a false sense of safety. They, they, they felt that, well, you know, we're so blessed by God. You see, look, God has pushed back our enemies. God has conquered them. God has helped us to bring glory to ourselves. Now, if we understand the Bible and we read other parts of the Bible in relation to this, these things, this pushing back of the enemy, this security, this peace, was not happening because Israel was doing right or had a right relationship with God. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 14, right? Uh, next slide. You actually see that during the time of Jeroboam, they were actually committing a lot of sin, and a lot of evil, a lot of idolatry. But at the same time, God still chose to bless them. 
Okay, so read carefully and understand what is happening here. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king of Samaria and he reigned 41 years. See, remember he ruled for a long time? Now, he wasn't a good king. He didn't do the right things. He didn't uh, do right before God. In fact, he said that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel. So, you know, he expanded the land from Libo Hamath to the Sea of Rabbah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet of Gath Hefer. The Lord has seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, both slave, how, sorry, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under the heaven, he saved them from the hand of Jeroboam, son of Johash. See, notice here what a contradiction it was. Jeroboam was a bad king. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of his previous uh, predecessor. But God still helped Jeroboam to expand his land. So what was happening in Israel during this time was not because Israel was doing righteous things or had a right relationship with God. It's not as if the king was doing a right thing. But rather, God was being merciful and gracious to his people. Now, that's a very important lesson, I think, for us here. Because it's very easy for us to have false security when times are good. Don't you think so? When times are good, the temptation is we think that God loves us. That we are being rewarded because we did something right before God. Isn't that the case? It works for me. I don't know whether it's the same thing for you. And then when times are bad, we, the, the great temptation for us to think is that God is unhappy with us and we have done something wrong. And I think that was exactly the situation here in chapter 6. You see, times were good for Israel. Times were great. The kingdom was growing. The enemies were being pushed back both in the east and in the, in the, in the west. And she thought, well, God is blessing us because we are such great people. We are so faithful to God. We've done all these religious acts. But if we understand what is really happening, <clears throat> God is not actually rewarding Israel for the good things that she's doing or for the faithfulness in her life, but rather He's doing it out of grace. And that's why if you look here in verse 3, chapter 6, it says, because of this attitude that they have, they are merely putting off the day of disaster and they're bringing near a reign of terror. You see, because they, they, they didn't see the real situation, they thought, oh, wow, you know, we're so good, we're so obedient. God is rewarding us. Judgment will still come because they hadn't changed. See, I think the lesson here for us is good times do not equal the fact that we are living right before God, that we are trusting God, that we are obedient to God, that we are following God. What matters at the end of the day is the state of my relationship with God, irregardless of what is happening in other circumstances in my life. See, the mistake and the false security we can make is times are good, life is good, everything is good, 
Therefore, my relationship with God is good. That's a, a false connection. That's a non sequitur, right? Because the state of my relationship with God, the condition of my heart before God, is, it can be very different to what's happening externally to me. So I always remember uh, this uh, pastor who, I'm, I'm not sure if he's still alive, I hope he is, but his name is Dudley Ford, and I remember him from many years ago, wonderful Christian leader. Uh, I, I met him many years ago, and I mentioned his name before. When he first started his ministry in Australia, he started uh, and built up a very successful church. And then later on in his life, he was called to go to South Africa to pastor a church there and to plant a theological college and I think to be the archbishop. And from what I understand, things went very badly there. Uh, he was involved in a lot of unsavory things, unhappy things, a sort of politics. The people didn't welcome him well there. And many of the things that he started failed. Then he went back to Australia again. And he pastored another church, which went well and grew. But all this time, his relationship with God didn't change. He was still faithful to God. His relationship with God was still always based in terms of his faithfulness, his love, and his trust in Jesus. But the circumstances around his life might have changed. You see, I mean, when he was in South Africa, things were very bad. When he was in Australia, things were very good. But they didn't reflect his walk in Christ. In the same way, the lesson for us as we learn this passage is just because times are good for us, maybe we're healthy, business is good, job is secure, family relationships are all very well, everybody's doing well, doesn't mean that God is happy with us or that our relationship with God is good. We must see ourselves independent of the external circumstances and ask ourselves, are we really being faithful to God? and trusting in God in everything that we do, and not have that false security of things being happy, and you know, everything is very good, but actually look at our heart and see where we stand before God. In verse 4 to 7, is the last, I think, false security or indulgence of God's people. So in verse 4 it says, You lie on beds adorned with ivory, and lounge in your couches, you dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strung away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Now here, it really uh, is a vivid picture of the indulgent lifestyle of the rich and famous, no, of the, of, the, of the Israelites, right? Of God's people here. So, they are lying in bed, and they are adorned with ivory. So ivory is a very expensive material, obviously it's banned now, you know, it's the, from the tusks of the elephants. And they're lounging on couches, and they're eating fine food, and they're doing lots of music, strumming on their harps and their musical instruments, and they're drinking wine, not by the cupful, but by the bowlful. And then they are using lots of cosmetics, okay? A lot of lotions. But I think that the, the summary of what's happening here is uh, in verse 7, right? Basically, they're they are just feasting and they're lounging. They're they are giving themselves over into feasting and lounging and just lazing around. So what's happening here? I don't think this is a false 
security is more like an indulgence which blinds themselves to the spiritual reality of what's happening. See, that's why it says there, but you do not grieve, in verse 6b, right? You do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Just one little half sentence, right? They do all these other things, but there's one thing that they do not do. And I think what's really being criticized here is that in their lounging, in their feasting, in their pursuit of entertainment and pleasure and good looks and cosmetics, all that stuff, they've become blinded to the, to the spiritual state of God's people. They don't see the lack of justice. They don't see the lack of righteousness. They don't see the, the judgment to come. Now, why does it say there, uh, the, the ruin of Joseph? Okay, I mean, this is just a side point, so we're not going to spend very long on it. But Joseph, uh, next slide, basically the, the children of Joseph were Manasseh and Ephraim. And Joseph basically forms the bulk of the northern kingdom. So what he's really saying is, you know, because people are so focused on having a good time, on lounging and feasting, and, you know, the music and the drinking, that they become insensitive to the spiritual state of what's happening in the nation. Now, I think that that can be something that happens to us as Christians. You know, I've met some Christians who, they, they've given themselves over so much to having fun, uh, not necessarily feasting and lounging, but, you know, just to so many hobbies and things that they become insensitive to the, their own spiritual state of what's really happening in their life. So I know this Christian friend who spends all his time just, you know, uh, planning for the next holiday, planning to, about where to eat, uh, deciding what hobbies to do, partying, so much so that you become blind to the spiritual state of your life or even the spiritual state of other people. And I think that can happen to us, isn't it? It's like we take our attention off our spiritual walk in Jesus, and we focus it on having fun, fun, fun. It's like, you know, you open the Sunday newspaper, and sometimes I try find it a bit unhelpful to open it on the Sunday. You know, the life section, and there are all these things that I must eat, all these places I must go on holiday, all these massage places, that a good thing I don't like massage, right? All these spa places you have to go to. And if you were to do it, really follow that sort of lifestyle, it makes you insensitive to the spiritual reality of who you are in Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it speaks of something similar, right? It, you know, it talks about how in the last days, this is what was going to happen. But look what it says right at the very end, that people will become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, I've always sort of reflected and thought about this passage, and I thought, well, Obviously, the people that, are, that, that, that Paul has in mind when he wrote to Timothy are people who seem to be religious people, isn't it? Because they have a form of godliness, a type of godliness, an appearance of godliness. But yet, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an appearance of godliness which really has no reality. Because at the heart of it, they, they just actually love pleasure and their relationship with God is just sort of more like a, a sideline. And I think that's what's happening here, isn't it? That these people, in their pursuit of drinking, partying, having fun, feasting and lounging, have become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have lost the inward passion for God and the things of God. In a Sermon on the Mount, which is going to be preached on at uh, the church camp, 
um, Jesus says very clearly, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, it's kind of hard to mourn and hunger and thirst for righteousness when you're at the same time, you're hungry and thirsting for the next holiday or the next big experience or the next, uh, next feast, isn't it? But that should be characteristic of God's people. We should be mourning when we read of people, other Christians who are falling. We should be mourning when we see our own sin. We should be hungry and thirsting for righteousness. But yet, the desire for pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure can dull our senses, our spiritual senses, and we no longer hunger and thirst for righteousness. We no longer mourn for what is right. And we lose our spiritual passion for God. So God here basically tells them to put aside all this indulgence and grieve and seek after righteousness and mercy instead. So as we come to, uh, we're not going to look at the second part, you can do that in your Bible studies, but as we come to uh, the end of the sermon, I think that sort of basically wraps up uh, what is being said here, isn't it? There were two main wars, the war in verse 18 in chapter 5 and the war in verse 1 of chapter 6. And both of those wars come about because of those three main things. The false security of religious acts. Well, God says, there is no security in your religious acts. If you think that by coming to church, going to Bible study, that makes you right with God, that's not true. That's a false security. But rather, it is a continual faithfulness in Jesus Christ and God, which is real security. If you think there is a, a false security because times are good, I'm having a good life, I'm happy, times are bright. Again, there's no security in that because in, a, in the end of the day, what God really wants is trust and obedience in every life situation. If in your life you are blinded and insensitive because of feasting and lounging and the love of pleasure, then God says, put your real security in a right relationship with God in, in terms of mourning for sin and hating sin and grieving over unrighteousness and evil. Because at the very end of this chapter in chapter 6, God comes back to the same theme as He does in the beginning in verse 18, chapter 15, verse 18, sorry, chapter 5, verse 18, right? That ultimately, if we do not put our security in the right things, our relationship with God, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then on the last day, all these false securities will be revealed for what they are. And we will only face darkness, utter blackness, darkness, terror and doom. And we will re recognize to our own folly that we have put our faith on the wrong things. And they have not actually achieved for us what we expected when Jesus Christ comes again. Let's bow our heads and go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your insight into the lives of your people in Israel and including our lives as well. That there is no point longing for the day of the Lord when we will receive judgment instead. There is no point longing for the day of your return if there is only the expectation of utter darkness and gloom and judgment and destruction. Dear Father, help us to see that only real security can be found in a living relationship 
with your Son, Jesus Christ. That He came, He died, and He died for our sins, and He rose again to give us eternal life. And as a result, our relationship with Him must be a relationship of faithfulness, of trust and in love. That there is no security found in religious observances or ceremonial acts. There is no security found in the good times that we have today. And instead, dear Father, help us to see that these things can blind us and help us to actually lose uh, our security in you. Dear Father, help us to see the great danger of being uh, given over to the love of pleasure, uh, to keep thinking and filling our lives and our minds with pleasure and fun and, and, and drinking and, and eating and feasting and holidays, but to lose sight of our relationship with Jesus. Help us to see that we need internally uh, to truly have your values and to grieve over sin and the sin of this world and to long for what is right and righteous before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.